Hello and welcome to another special edition of the Political Party as part of this replay series. While I'm in hospital, um, pre-recorded this, of course, and sneaked a mic onto the uh, ward. I'm not under my <laughs> duvet uh, podcasting. That would obviously be... Uh, I don't know. Are you allowed to podcast in hospitals? I mean, if you are, I'll have figured it out by now and I'll be making other episodes. But um, uh, uh, checking on my Twitter feed. Hopefully I'm doing all right. <laughs> I'm now sort of wishing myself well from the past. But by the time you listen to this, obviously, it will be the present. But we are going back to the past today um, with Paddy Ashdown. This is from 2016. Uh, Paddy, of course, uh, such an iconic political figure. And such uh, a, a dominant political figure in liberal left progressive politics for such a long time, and sadly no longer with us. And that's one of the the hard things about going back through this back catalogue is uh, some of the wonderful people that I was so privileged to meet and interview, uh, sadly have passed on in that time. And obviously Tessa Jowell uh, and and today Paddy Ashdown. Um, but I just had to include this because, firstly, it's a great company, and secondly. I think you're always in awe of people who were politicians when you were first getting into it. And I think it's the same with football or anything, is the first people you saw do it on the news, you always just think, almost like they're the original politicians. And Paddy Ashdown is one of those people for me. A titanic, totemic figure in, in liberal left progressive politics with just such a fantastic personality and brilliant, brilliant company. And, and what I remember more than that is just his laugh. And his whole face would contort in laughter. And just what a joy he was. So from 2016, December 2016, uh, almost, well, just about seven years ago, uh, enjoy this. The former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Paddy Ashton. Uh, well, tonight uh, we have a very special guest. Um, there are certain guests that I've approached and have come on the show uh, very quickly. There's certain other guests that I've had to try and try and try to get to come and do it, and I'm delighted uh, that tonight's guest uh, has agreed to come and do this. For those of us that grew up in my generation, I'm 34 years old, and remember that period of uh, John Major's government coming towards an end and the lead up to that momentous uh, election in 1997, uh, tonight's guest is one of the biggest players in that time, and someone... When I grew up watching uh, the news, he was a hero of mine. He's someone I've always wanted to sit down and talk to. I'm delighted that he's agreed to come down tonight. Please give a huge welcome to Paddy Ashdown. <laughs> Paddy, welcome to the show. Well, that was a nice build-up, wasn't it? <laughs> Good thing if any of it was true, really, don't you think? Oh, I think it's true. <laughs> no, no, I'm um, I mean, very, very kind. We, now, um, we can call you Paddy. You can, I'd much prefer fine. it. Only went to the House of Lords to get rid of it, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> because you your full title is incredible, if you don't mind me reading it out. The Right Honourable, the Lord Ashdown of Norton Subhamden, GCMG, CH, KBE, PC, PL. It no, it should be PM. That's quite right. Spoils yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my whole afternoon. Don't take it any bit seriously, by the way. All that lot comes up with the rations if you're my age. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 there are so many things that we, 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 we need to talk about. Um, but we should deal, I think, with the topical um, things first. Mm. Did you think Trump was going to win? Yeah. I did, uh, Matt, because I tell you what I thought. Uh, by the way, I, I remember... 
10 years ago, starting to say that one of the really the big things that worried me about British politics was the gap that was growing between government and governed. And I remember giving speeches, but I never paid any attention because I was a liberal. Um, and, um, and then I remember about a year ago, the Times actually did a front page article, quite a critical one. And I said that I thought there was a great leviathan, I was really proud of this, great leviathan stirring under the placid waters of politics. And then Brexit arrived. Um, I said to my friends, three or four weeks out, we're going to lose this. I could just sense it. This, this thing was moving. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe this is just a UK convulsion. Maybe that's it. Maybe this is us showing our independence. And who knows? The mate at the side here may be right. I thought it was a disaster. But there you go. He and I can fall out afterwards. <laughs> By the way, I should warn you, I'm trained in cruel and unusual punishments. <laughs> um, so... Um, so um, so I, 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 and then, and then I felt exactly the same thing. Um, I, think still, I haven't seen you yet. How big are you? He's a big lad. <laughs> a couple of half boots yeah. to take him down. <laughs> so, um, so when you say cruel and unusual punishments, though, don't get into it. No, I want to finish with Trump. Okay. So, you know, and then I saw the Trump thing, and it was exactly the same. It had all the same ingredients. If you get me onto that, I'll have to tell you a toilet paper story. Oh, oh, well, because that, that was such a cracking run. God, <laughs> you milk that like hell, but. Oh, you got to. Yeah, it was. You know, it's one of those. One of those wonderful runs, you get into somebody who says something ridiculous and you can't believe it. And then he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the shit. <laughs> so here I am, we're going back to cruel and unusual punishment. I'm allowed to tell the story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Everything's I, off the record. I'm a young Royal Marine. <laughs> I'm a young Royal Marine officer. I'm age 18. I'm going through my commando course and I have a bloody great drill sergeant who, um, who <laughs> we frightened to death. I was an officer, but he was... Uh, he was the bloke in charge and he knew it. And he, he used to have kit inspections. Um, and you had to lay your kit out. And it'd be exactly right. And one day he came in and he looked at my kit. And he said, what is this, young sir? And I said, it's me kit, Sergeant Major. And he said, is these four pieces of shit-ass paper I can see here? <laughs> and I said, yes, Sergeant Major. He said, look, sir. Young sir, you're only allowed three pieces of shit-ass paper. He said, one up, one down, and one to polish, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to send that to Mr. Woolmer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, you, well, how did we get onto this, by the way? Because uh, you, <laughs> you're going to kill that guy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, because you were in the SBS... You were, uh, you were in MI6, you, you had a... No, I have to problem. eat you if you say I'm in MI6. But it was the, it was the SIS, wasn't it? It was just kind of... MI6 is SIS. Yeah. I was in a certain organisation that I... Shall I tell you a story about it? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so here we are, I joined, and the headquarters was at 100 Westminster Bridge Road. It's called Century House. And it's not far from Lambeth North um, Tube Station. Nowadays, they live in MI6 headquarters further on down. Oh, God, I've just admitted I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so we were told that... Since the Russians were watching, it's still there, this building, 13 storeys high, and by, by Lambeth Station and Lambeth North. And we, we were told that the Russians were watching, so we couldn't sort of walk in in case they saw us going in, because they would then know we were a spy or something. So we had to sort of sneak in sideways, and you know, it wasn't quite out of a different beard on each day, but you had to be discreet about how you went in. And we all desperately tried to be discreet when I was under training, except that the bus driver in the 159 bus that I still take to the House of Lords every morning 
used to, those were the days when you had bus conductors. And every time the bus came up to Lambeth North Tube Station, you'd say, Lambeth North Tube Station, all spies are light here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, suppose, I suppose the Russians got to, got to know about it. <laughs> but I was never a member of that organisation, as you know. Cause I, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they just had a good canteen. <laughs> uh, it, it's quite rare for a politician, a top-ranked politician, to have had such a phenomenal life before politics, particularly seeing active service and being involved in the intelligence uh, services. <clears throat> to the extent where you, you gave evidence against Slobodan Milosevic. When he yeah, I wasn't started. a soldier then, but yeah. Can I address the first part of your... I mean, I think... Look, I was a soldier. I was in the Foreign Office, so-called... I was a businessman. Um, I'm the only member of parliament. Everybody remembers Paddy Ashdown and Royal Marine. They don't remember Paddy Ashdown unemployed. I'm the only member of parliament ever to have been elected from the unemployed register. Two periods of unemployment. I was a youth worker. Well, before and after. <laughs> that was before. Both of them before, when I was trying to win my seat. So all of these things, I can't say I planned them that by any manner of means. I mean, they were all sort of foolhardy. but. In the end, when I came to be a politician at the age of 43, they had proved, by accident, an enormously good apprenticeship for what I then had to do. And, um, and in truth, I think one of our problems in politics today is that all our leaders, even my beloved Nick Clegg, who I adore, um, and I'm devoted to, have done nothing else but politics all their life, one way or the other. They came out of shoot school in short pants, been politicians, and I think that's one of the reasons why people just don't trust our politicians very much because they've never lived a normal life and I really think that's bad. I'm lucky enough. I agree, but Ed Miliband would not have survived in the Marines. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd have survived in a polytechnic. <laughs> <laughs> Was that rude? A bit. Yeah, but it's a joke, so it's fine. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's fine. Uh, that's the principle. Yeah, that's, that, that's the rule. Um, what made you want to be a, a, a Marine, a commander? My dad um, and mum, um, uh, I got into, I had a place in, I never went to university, I had a place in, uh, in, in, in Oxford, but my mum and dad couldn't afford to send me there. His business went bust. Um, and he emigrated with my then five brothers and sisters, one had already died, um, to Australia and left me behind at the age of 18. And, um, by accident. As, <laughs> oh my god we left him <laughs> in order to pay for my schooling because my parents didn't have any money and they sent me to a private school I didn't send my kids to one they went to state school but they sent me to a private school in order to pay for that last two years and to enable my brother to go to the school I took a naval scholarship at the age of 16 and they paid for my fees so I was tied into that and, um, and I didn't want to go to the Navy. I much more wanted to be a Royal Marine, and I was. And to be honest, Matt, you know, my life's been an accident. To be honest, it was exactly right for me. If I'd have gone off to university, I'd have wasted those years on women and booze and sport and, you know, the kind of things I can't ever do and never have done since, by the way. Of course, I've never been involved in any of that. <laughs> at all, ever. Um, <clears throat> and, as you know. <clears throat> and, um, anyway... Actually, the Royal Marines for the first 11 years of my life, including, you know, active service in the Far East and in Aden, and in particular, oddly enough, it was SBS when commanding a group of SBS that made me be a liberal. So this was exactly the right thing for young, young, young Lieutenant Ashdown uh, for the rest of my life. So I tell you, uh, I, 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 had, I had two wonderful reports written on me, Matt. 
um, both by the same man. And one of them, who was my commanding officer, said, um, he's a colonel, and he said, um, he said, Lieutenant Ashdown's men would follow him anywhere, but chiefly out of curiosity. He was a sort of, he was a sort of, um, he was a sort of uh, frustrated cavalryman. He kept horses and raced them and bred them. It was not really, he wasn't really a very typical commando officer. And he wrote a report on me once which said, I would hesitate to breed from this officer. <laughs> <laughs> Relief, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're getting off the topic again, aren't we? But, but why did being in the SPS make you a liberal? It was my, I mean, first of all, I, I, you know, I came into politics because I hate the class system. I detest the class system. I want to create a meritocratic society in which people get on, or help to get on according to their abilities. And in the SBS and special forces, you're in difficult places and often quite dangerous ones. And you depend for your life on your next door neighbor. We used to be diving under ships and doing other things. And he depends on you and there isn't any class. And you, you know, there's that human bond, bond, I was gonna say bondage, that human bond, <laughs> not, not that at all. We're Royal Marines, we're not the Navy. Just uh, hazing. That, that bond, I mean, my life has certainly been saved by many of the men I commanded. And, and, uh, and in truth, I have to confess, I remember realizing at the time that, that um, I, it was my accident of birth that I was in command of them, and they were probably better at the profession of soldiering than I was. And the only reason why I was in command of them was because of my background. And if only we could create a society that would liberate the power of every individual. I don't believe in the strong state. I believe in the empowered individual. Uh, and that's what I saw, and I said that was the that was the the, the birth of my political belief in liberalism. And uh, you know, it hasn't. Oscar Wilde once said that in a in a in a in a democracy, the minority is always right. I have to say that's given me huge comfort over 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 it hasn't an easy cause to follow, but I can look at myself in the mirror and feel proud every morning, and I'm very happy. That's what I am. Well, you, you should. I mean, you, you, your career was founded on the, on the principles that you that you discovered in the SPS, and, and I think you've lived by uh, your ideals. Obviously, this year, being in the minority uh, has been a big news story in terms of leaving the European Union, uh, and you threw yourself into that campaign. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a lovely photo of you, David Cameron, and Neil Kinnock, mm. manning the phones, I'm sure people saw it at uh, Remain headquarters, and it reminded me... Of a, of a lovely photo in John Major's autobiography yeah, of you, John Major and Tony Blair. And I, I think there's something really powerful when politicians and leaders set aside their party differences and campaign together on whatever it is. Mm. I think actually, far from it being seen as selling out, I think the public find it reassuring. You've always been prepared to work with other parties. Yeah, because I, look, I'm a liberal. I believe in a series of... One of the beliefs is that I cannot be <coughs> so certain I'm right that I can entitle to reject your views, I have to argue them, and I'm certain, I mean, for me, friendship is superior to political beliefs. Uh, um, and I find it possible to be friends with people who hold totally different beliefs than me. Uh, and that's true of politics too. And there is uh, key moments, I think moments when our nation does best is when they all come together and say, now we put the national interest first. Nick Clegg in the coalition, had the courage to lead our party to do that. We didn't benefit from it, but it was absolutely the right thing to do, and I wouldn't renege on the decision that we took at all. It was right for us to do it. So yeah, um, the, uh, the, I, I like John Major. I really like John Major. 
Still um, talk to him. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, and I, I think he's, I think he's gone on far better as an ex prime minister than Tony Blair, by the way. Well, um, I'm sorry, I know. I've been there. Uh, um, although you do, can you do Don Major, by the way? Not just in the sort of. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, 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 and in the words that I expressed, um, the, the, proving I, that I can't. The first line on his biography, I shall never, it's so typically John Major. Oh, I can't do it. On the morning after, on the morrow of my defeat, I went, <laughs> on the morrow of my defeat, I went to Lords to watch the cricket. It's so much John Major. It's a lovely the, bit, the story, <clears throat> that story, <clears throat> there's a funny, a funny story we can attach to that. It was also in my in my memoirs, which is called uh, A Fortunate Life, and it's still, available. it's still available at all the best bookshops, and I noticed you haven't read it because you quoted the photograph in his, but never mind. Oh, well, I'll I give you a copy it. after. It was, it was because I read, I got John Major's, I think, for my 18th birthday. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> keep digging. Or, keep, keep you digging. You know, the thing is, actually, I didn't. What, my mum gave me the money because she refused to give money to John Major. <laughs> so I had to go to WXW and buy it myself. <laughs> This is getting sadder and sadder. <laughs> so anyway, the story is this. this is, we've had a very hot summer. We're all going away over the month of July. Because uh, Parliament sort of goes away over August and never then. So uh, we had to all come back for VE Day. And there's going to be a great celebration, national celebration, on the, on the Horse Guards Parade. And so all the party leaders had to be there. So there was Blair. He was leader of the opposition. There was me and there was Major. And Blair came back sometime. He's sort of permatan, hasn't he, really? Yeah. It's always there at the sometime. Um, and, uh, and, and it'd be a very hot one. And I said to John Major, you're looking very well, Prime Minister. And he said, oh, yes, I've had a wonderful... I can't do it. Like, can, can I do it? No. Oh, but keep I, doing it. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, it's whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a wonderful holiday. I said, well, you're looking brown. He said, have you been sunbathing? He said, yeah. Where have you been? In Huntingdon. He said, well, what have you been doing? Well, then my goldfish got sunburned. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was talking to the British Prime Minister. <laughs> and I said, what did you do? And he looked at me straight. He said, well, I, I put suntan cream on them, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so here's the British Prime Minister fishing around for goldfish, <laughs> but taking him out and putting suntan cream. And like, it was still such a hilarious. I just couldn't stop laughing. Neither could Blair. And to be fair, John Major did as well. And that's the story behind the photograph. It's a, it's a great, great photo. But you, you had good relations with, with both Men. Um, and obviously, yeah. in the run up to that election, all the talk was that regardless of the result, really, there would be this sort of grand new Lib Lab pact that you would play a leading part in, and that didn't happen. It didn't happen, Matt. I mean, Tony Blair and I, I've always believed that if you, be if you come from different parties, but you believe the same thing, why shouldn't you work together? And um, so Tony and I started working together. Like Nick Clegg and the Tories. Uh, yeah, well, that was a coalition. I mean, we, we worked together to do the things. We won't get into that unless you really want to. Um, this is voluntarily. So, so um, uh, we got together and we were, and I have to say, we plotted and planned to remove Major because we, you know, we would actually coordinate Prime Minister's questions to make his life uncomfortable, poor fellow. Uh, and, um, and, so, and then we actually encouraged the process of tactical voting and we set out a whole process, a whole programme of constitutional reform a Scottish Parliament, etc., and we were talking about putting together a coalition. And the point that he made and I made together was, wouldn't it be great if you had a coalition of choice? You didn't have to have it because you had a majority, but you choose to work together on the key things that matter for the country. And that's what we're going to do. And then in the day after the election, he had such a big majority. We doubled our seats as well. 
he had such a big majority that he said, and to be honest, I agreed with him, though I think both of us concluded it was wrong afterwards, that it would be somehow an affront to democracy if we had added what was 150 majority to another 50 Labour, Tory, uh, Lib Dem MPs, and you wouldn't have a decent opposition. So, so we decided not to. I think it was the wrong decision. Never take a decision the day after an election. Your bloodstream is too full of testosterone and adrenaline. Usually more adrenaline, actually, come to think of it. Um, and um, so we took that decision, and then we worked together to bring in uh, a Parliament for Scotland, a Parliament for Wales, proportional representation in the European election, Freedom of Information Act, um, European um, human rights um, uh, uh, legislation. Did a lot, um, and then it sort of drifted into oppositionism again, which is a pity. I think that moment's arriving again now. I genuinely do. But it won't be with Corbyn, will it? It would no, be with no. dissatisfied Labour MPs. No, I think what you've got to think of, Matt, and, and, and I'm, I'm guessing you may be one of these, and I guess they're in the audience too. I think there are lots of people out there who are as scared, as frightened as I am about what's happened to our country, who are as committed to making change to it, who are deeply politically engaged and who want to make an effect, but no longer want to do it through political parties. And the question is, can we put together a people's movement? And if you take a look, getting really serious now, take a look at what's happened in politics, what's really reshaped politics these last year, I suppose, and more, it isn't happening by political parties. It's people's movements that take over momentum, Jeremy Corbyn, to the great disadvantage of Labour, in my view, that take over the Republican Party. And if they can't find one, they'll invent their own, like UKIP, or for that matter, the SNP as well. Now, what I don't understand is why is all of the great people's movements we've seen for something which I would regard to be uglier and worse, why can't we have one for those decent values of tolerance, respect, uh, a habit of compromise um, that make me love my country? And so what we've tried, thank you, what we've tried to do is create this movement more united. It's not for politicians, it's moreunited.uk, it's not for politicians. It's for people who want to make a difference, are as frightened and engaged as I am, believe in the five principles that we lay down, we could talk about those, and want to come together. So I wonder if there's an appetite for this. Do you know, in seven, eight weeks, 65,000 people have joined. Last Thursday we launched a crowdfunder, Somebody told me it would never get to 50,000. It got over 100,000 pounds in three days. Now we will take that money and we will invest it in people of any party or none who adhere to our principles and we'll support their candidates in standing for election. For instance, we are supporting Sarah Olney with money and with people who've never been involved in politics before going down there to help. So what we're trying to do is create a political movement that can support those decent values that I adhere to, I think you do, and at least some in your audience do as well. But it, so it's what's liberal left centrist? You know, it's, uh, I refuse to call it left because there's actually Tories who want to join now too. No, it's a progressive centre. That's what I call it. People say, well, is it a, is it a political party? And No, it's not a political party. It's not going to be a political party. So what is it? And I think it's something completely new. It's never quite been done like this before. Here's my analogy. It's the national lottery. We raise money to invest in progressive winners. That's what we do. We're not going to become a political party. But if you're Tory, if you're Labour, if you're Lib Dem, or if you're an independent, and you adhere to the five principles that we ascribe to, a free market-based economy, but one which is our servant, not our master, a commitment to internationalism and being as close to Europe as we can get, if we have to be out and in if we get a second chance, 
an internationalist foreign policy, a green agenda, and the celebration of a multicultural and diverse society. Those are the five principles. Here are those. We don't care. We are colorblind. We don't care which party you belong to. We will help you get elected. And if you get enough of you in Parliament, we can genuinely change politics. It's a great idea, and it has, I think, a great following. By the way, I'm going to pull out of it now because I know more people. <laughs> well, only, only, I, 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 think I, better, I think I better explain that. that. If I'm there, if I'm there, people say it's got to be it's a Paddy Ashdown front organisation or it's a Lib Dem front organisation. It's not. Yeah. So I thought of this with somebody else, and if, but if I'm there, I'm going to contaminate it. I need to pull back. So the new spokesman for the party is going to be Dan Snow. Oh, Johnson. Yeah, Johnson. Dan, yeah, Johnson's son. Um, and oh, Pete's son. I never know which of the two, but it's Dan Snow. Anyway. And people, people are on there like you know um, Simon Sharma, yeah. like Martha Lane Fox, like Claire Gerrada, like Josh Babarinde. And so I think if it's going to be a people's movement, it shouldn't be contaminated with high-profile politicians. So for that reason, having helped to give it birth, I'm going to hand it over to others. Well, I think that's probably the right thing to do. I'm glad you agree. Join. You said it was like a lottery. Do I win 100 quid if I back the winner? Is that no, you... you <laughs> sort of disincentive. Um, <laughs> no, but I understand. You're absolutely right. And I think there is, there's, a, there's certainly frustration. This is what I, I think a lot of people feel, is that the sort of moderate, liberal left, whatever you would describe that as... You're dead right. At the moment, it, 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 so, somehow the ballot box seems to be in retreat. But, and yet, it seems to be the majority of people in the country. If, it was, if there was one block of people that voted for sort of... Not New Labour, but New Labour by a different name. Liberal Democrats, and then maybe sort of a few yeah. centre-right Tories. That would be the, probably the most successful party in Britain at the moment. Yeah, that's right. And yet, those bridges don't exist. And yet, that is... A, I mean, here is the thing, and it was exactly the same revelation, if you like, epiphany that I had with Blair, which is that actually, I think the centre of gravity of Britain is actually centre-left. The centre of gravity of America, it seems to me, is centre-right. And yet we now have politics spinning away to the extremes. You have um, the Tories, who have more or less adopted UKIP's position. And so those internationalist Tories have nowhere to go to. You've got UKIP, which has become the Tory party's northern cousins. Um, you have got, um, you've got Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and that centre ground is now voiceless. It's lost. Because we in the centre ground in politics are broken, scattered, and, and divided up. We have to put those together to get politics back into a sensible place. And so, you know, the rage and scream of pain of Brexit was about people in the North who had felt they were voiceless against the powers of globalisation. I understand where they're coming from. I don't believe you'll solve that by hiding from it. But I think the real voiceless now are that progressive centre majority who've got no one to vote for. And if we can start the habit of working together because we actually agree with, on the big things, let's do so. Obviously, another major figure from your era has been saying a similar thing in the last fortnight, Tony Blair. Tony, I mean, yeah. If you and he were to join forces, would that be something you'd be interested in? 20 no. years later, reunion tour? <laughs> <laughs> no. Why? Uh, well, I'll tell you why, because I think once you leave the stage, you leave the stage in politics. I'm much more interested in creating something which the present generation, um, who, by the way, hold those views much more powerfully, um, um, I have the chance to 
pick up the baton and, 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 and run with it. I don't think you do this by bringing back the old, faded, aging actors who did it in the past. I also think that for some, and you're going to really hate this, Matt, but never mind, I just thought I'll tell it as it is, really. Um, for some, um, if you have seen a revolt against the carefully manicured, word never put wrong, machine politician who does everything by then Tony Blair is not an example of an exception to that. I think many people see him as an example of exactly that problem. Now, by, the way, I, by, the way, I, by the way, I'm not saying I do, and I'm not saying for a moment that the guy doesn't st still have magic. Um, but if you want to create a politics which is about a people's movement that can drag politics back to the center and has a fresh approach that can enliven our democracy, Again, I'm not sure that, you know, um, a sort of uh, last tour of Blair and Ashdown is the way to do it. <laughs> I, I, a serious point for that. I write books. Uh, by the way, I've just produced my ninth. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, uh, it's called Game of Spies. Got it, written down here. Got it uh, thank God. Game Say, what's it called? Game oh, of sorry. Spies. Game of Spies. Uh, and it's a, it's a history book. It's, it's, it's a thriller. It's not a thriller, but it's a book based on real history. It really happened. In Bordeaux, but but my next book is is, is a book about um, which I'm researching now, which is a book about the German opposition to Adolf Hitler, mm. and it's an astonishing story. I mean, my hair stands on end when I read it. Sometimes, and very little of it. You may have seen the Valkyrie film. That's just the very end of it. I mean, it's an extraordinary story about these people. Huge moral courage they had, and I'm in the 30s, and boy, doesn't this feel like the 30s? It really feels like the 30s. The end of the League of Nations, the retreat into isolationism, the rise of protectionism against you know, free trade, this appalling thing of distrust of any of the systems of power in the establishment, a revolt of the public. The, the fact that you know, those who shout loudest and often with the ugliest messages get listened to where the small voice of reason doesn't, it feels horribly like the 30s. We have to turn it away from the consequence of that. And, and that, that is more reason why yeah, I'm, a, I'm a deep patriot. <laughs> I'm a, I love my country. I fought for it. I represented it abroad. But what I love my country for is its habit of compromise, its respect it has for others, its tolerance. And I love its multiculturalism, too. And I really feel for the first time in my life that that is now threatened. And we have to fight to make, to make we can sure we can return that. If the era we're living in is, does turn out to be <clears throat> sort of the new 30s, there's a sense of hope there, isn't there? Because then after no. World War Three, we'll all come back. <laughs> oh, cheers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you know, I, the thing that frightened me to death is I heard people saying during Brexit, and I heard them saying during the Trump um, thing, look, things are so bad, we better vote for them because they can't get worse. That was exactly what was said mm. when they elected Hitler, and lo and behold, it did get worse, much, much worse. Um, you look at our wonderful city, London. You know, it, to me, is a jewel of our country. Uh, it's almost like a different country, by the way. Why is it the world's most successful city? Because it is multicultural, because it is multi-ethnic, because it has learned to deal with that, because it can reach out globally to every corner of the world. So how idiotic that Britain, which is really famous for that, retreats into isolationism and thinks the future is, is sheltering behind our island walls and, fight, and shouting insults at foreigners. Churchill faced with, Churchill faced, and by the way, in the 1930s, that democracy isn't working. We have to invent something else. You know, we want strong men. So you had Hitler and Mussolini. Is this creating any sort of parallels in your mind, guys? Because I hope it is by now. Um, and so Churchill was asked, what do you do about it? In a lovely phrase, he said, you just got to keep on buggering on.
Isn't that great? Isn't that Churchill? The truth is, you can't lose faith in democracy. You can't lose faith in those basic values. You've just got to keep on fighting. There's no point in looking for easy solutions. Um, <clears throat> there's a, poetry is one of my passions, man. I hope I'm not going to sort of take it too much to one side. But uh, what a great poem that I think is a motto, motto for our troubled times. It was written by a man, an Indian, by the way, in 1904, 1905, in Bengali. His name was Rabindranath Tagore, and he wrote a poem which is called The Celebration of Diversity. And for us, it seems to me a motto for our time, a creed for our time. And it goes like this. We are all the more one because we are many, for we have left an ample space for love in the gap where we were sundered. Our unlikeness shines with the radiance of a common creation like mountain peaks in the morning sun. Isn't that wonderful? For me, the greatest revelation of the divine Whatever divine you happen to believe in, the greatest revelation of our humanity does not lie in our sameness. It lies in our differences. And if we lose that, we will lose the capacity to be a civilized society, to live in a peaceful world, and to live our own lives by any kind of standards that can deliver success. And I'm determined we shouldn't do that. So how, then, is the center-left and liberalism finding it so difficult to get a foothold because in an advanced economy like Britain's? Well, because we, you know, we haven't, you know, we, we you, you're not going to, you can't hide under a stair, stair with a blanket over your head to avoid globalisation. This is coming. The question is, how do we deal with globalisation and create a successful economy and decent society? You then have to tackle the issue of the distribution of wealth. It is obscene, the gap of wealth, wealth in Britain is now building up. No wonder those people uh, left out in Britain feel that they can't have a share in this. No wonder they're revolting. We have to begin to think about how you redistribute that. I think you redistribute that in better public services and giving people more opportunity and education in particular. Um, so that's the first thing you have to do. We have to address some of those issues we failed to do. We have not to lose contact or faith in those great things that we believe in, tolerance and so on, and we have to keep on buggering on. <laughs> it just feels like such quite a depressing time. Now, I'm an optimist, but it just does feel that... I mean, for instance, take the Liberal Democrats at the moment. This is a huge opportunity for the yeah, Liberals. Yeah. Only eight MPs, but nevertheless, still a certain level of public support. They've owned the 48% in a way that Corbyn hasn't wanted yeah, to. Yeah, agree. And yet, and yet, why isn't that polling changing? Why aren't the Liberal Democrats energised by Brexit in the way that the SNP were? And I know the two uh, examples are very different, but in the way that the Scottish Independence referendum really energised the SNP, well, why hasn't Brexit energised the Lib Dems in the same well, way? Well, you know, it has. I mean, in a strange way, it has. I mean, look, I agree... I fought the general, I led the general election and I bear responsibility for it, but the general election was disastrous. I mean, it left us sort of roadkill at the side of the road with eight MPs. Like Heseltine's Drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say that Heseltine killed Trump because he thought he was a squirrel. You know, <laughs> um, anyway, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the, so we are indeed diminished. And yet... After Nick Clegg's speech, that great resignation speech, which moved me to tears, 20,000 people joined us. 20,000! Who said, we cannot leave the defence of liberalism to you any longer. We've got to come and join you. And after Brexit, another 30,000 joined us. We're now bigger than we have ever been. Now, look, here's the difficulty, and I have to be very blunt about this, and I spoke to Tim about it. Yeah, we are now growing. I think, by the way, I'll, I'll take a 20 quid. We can, we can win in, we'll win in Richmond tomorrow. Will I go for it? 
I think he will win. All right, bugger. Right, sorry. <laughs> well, who, who doesn't? You want to bet? You want to bet with someone who doesn't think you'll win? Our friend over here, the big one, the one. <laughs> Delboy. No, I think he, he loves a deal. He loves a deal. Yeah, no, I think he earns. I think he earns more than me. He's going to stick more than twenty quid on this. I'm not going further than twenty quid, mate, unless you're really big and beat it out of me. Um, so, so. Um, so <laughs> I, I must meet to him. Happen, though. I, 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 what? You give him twenty quid. Twenty quid. You know, I think you, I think you do deserve a show of your own. <laughs> Something great. Anyway, um, what brought us on to this? So, look, I think we can win in Richmond tomorrow. I think if we do, that'll be a hell of a joke. But if we did magnificently well and translated 80 to how many seats? 30 seats. Next, we've still got a bloody Tory majority. The issue is not, it seems to me, can the Liberal Democrats recover? Yes, they can. The issue is not what can we do to remove the Tory party's majority. The issue is how can we put together a decent progressive government in this country. And so I think the Lib Dems have to be prepared to reach out. We use our strength to be the centre of a widening network that involves all of those people in the progressive centre. Out of that, who knows what will come. But I'm very clear that that seems to me the, the best way through. Uh, Nick Clegg was a guest here recently. Yeah. Just a couple of months ago, he was superb. It strikes me. And I hate was... you when you say that, you know. Why? Because, you know, I, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you can't say it halfway I... through. I can't yeah, say, by the way, yeah, yeah, you no. are superb. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, of course you can. <laughs> What's stopping you? No, that's not that. Right. I just want you to know, I taught Nick Clegg, okay? So just to know... <laughs> it's but... a joke. He's a wonderful man, and I... <laughs> no, I... I, I am devoted to him, and I do think that he was the best prime minister this country has never had. I genuinely did, did everything. I, there's, there's a clap. Oh, there's, there's one Lib Dem in here. <laughs> but do you think he could lead the party again? I think Nick Clay could do anything. I am very clear in my mind. I mean, look, here's what I think might happen. I'm not predicting it, but you know, we have to look ahead and you have to try and think what's happening. I think you're beginning to see a revolt against Brexit. Uh, you look at the opinion polls, people are beginning, whoops, I'm not sure we were right about that. Um, and they're beginning to feel the discomfiture of that. Um, if that indeed becomes a public mood about the middle of next year, if it is the case that we begin to get the progressive centre together, if it begins to be the case that you're creating a movement uh, you know, for those things, then I think we're beginning to put together the political forces. And I think at that moment, the Nick Clegg will return uh, and will be one of the most most important people in that movement. His time will come again, I'm sure of that. I said to him the other day, I thought he was about an inch away from being a national treasure. And it pains me to What was he doing? Because I thought I was a national treasure. <laughs> I thought I was a national treasure. <laughs>
I'd tell my wife and she wouldn't believe me because she plays that. I very rarely do. So she'd be like, what, you don't do this? And then um, the moral high ground in doling out the money that she's always craved in her life will be robbed from her. So there'll be like this fantastic double whammy because she always says, what would we do with it? What would I do with it? She ums and ahs about it and I get double points because then I go, well, we're not giving the money to your brother after all or whatever. I mean, I will. We obviously would have to give the money to our brother. But <laughs> seems like the but, first uh, thing you have to pay for is a divorce out. <laughs> Hopefully there's enough money to cover that as well. I would be tempted to tell no one ever. I'll be tempted <laughs> to just keep ridiculous. it a secret my whole life. And I don't know if that yeah. reflects very badly on me. The inner 14-year-old Matt Ford, if he could spend any amount of money on something, what would it be? I mean, would it be, say, forest-related? Probably, yeah. Just old... I mean, but that's already what I spend all my money on. Just old shirts worn by players no one else cares about. And signed England <laughs> merchandise. I'd basically buy... A box at Wembley, a box at Forest, and I would just fritter the money away, I think, on signed football memorabilia. But I would yeah. still, I think I would keep my daily life fairly normal. Yeah. And then I would just, mm -hmm. I think I would go mad on the, ex I think for me it would be experiences. I'd do everything I'm doing now, but better. So I would join a gym that had a steam room. I might move to a, a nicer part of town with a bigger house. But I would just, I'd basically just upgrade everything in, a, in yeah. quite a normal way. So no one could really know. Yeah, and also, I'm not that bothered about having a car. I like getting taxis. I just keep getting taxis everywhere. Yeah, Does that make me sound decadent already? And what would your... If you had to buy, like, a big, stupid, daft gift to yourself, what would you both pick? Sherman Tank. Sherman Tank, you go. I think so, probably. I, you know, because I'd be able to play from that. Uh, whereas, you know, if I bought a Spitfire, it'd take me years to learn how to fly it, wouldn't it? And, and also, it would just eat into me how much I'm spending on it all the time. Whereas a Sherman Tank, you can park in the garage, and it would just be so brilliant to take it out around the village go to the pub in it and stuff. Yeah, I think I'd buy a Cromwell and I'd park it in the street, though. I'd find a way to be able to... Yeah. I'd pay the parking fines to park it in the yeah. street. That's one of my major outgoings would be paying the parking fines that the council would literally smack on me. I mean, Matt, you know, politics, you spend money to do to do politics, don't you? Politics is all about having the cash to buy kind of influence. Is that, would you do anything political with it, do you think? I think I, would, I might lobby for a cause. You know, I've often thought, I mean, maybe this is mad right, but I always thought, that the state should do something for people at Christmas, like a Christmas bonus from the state. So either like a free pint or a free bag of chips or something basically worth about a fiver. And you've got to take it between the 24th and the 26th of, of December. Yeah. And it's either a bag of chips, a pint, um, I don't know, a block of tofu, whatever you're into, up to a fiver. And just like have a government catalogue. Well, that'd be great. It's like, it's like, it's like a na nationwide secret centre. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I would lobby it, and, and that lobbying would take the form of a Christmas event in the Houses of Parliament where I gave every MP a gift up to a fiver and say, think how good you feel today. You could do that for every person in this country. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't mind buying, you know, like a sort of Henry VIII-style suit of armour, but I'd wear it. There's no point buying this stuff putting in glass. I'd wear it. I'd turn up, I'd turn up to gigs in armour. Um, and and swan about in a sort of kingly manner. And and I've recently, recently for this play, I've had to wear one of those great big King Charles type wigs. You know, that goes that goes down to your elbows. The great rolling curls. I look fantastic in that. In my humble opinion, that is the best period of men's dress ever. You cannot fault it. You know, sixteen sixty to circa seventeen fifteen. Yeah, you cannot go wrong. But it sounds like just what Al wants is hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, are, there are clinics abroad, Al, that you can go to. I don't think you need a, a national lottery win to sort this. 
So, just like any of us, when it comes to the National Lottery, I mean, it could be you, ladies and gentlemen. If you were to play tonight, where would you keep your ticket? I would keep it on my phone, because the last time I played the National Lottery, I used the app. Oh. Gave me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, well, I've got, I've got a rather natty blue flying jacket, and it's got a little inside pocket with a zip, and I'd put it in there. It'd be on the notice board. It would be on our family notice board in the kitchen, pinned to the court board. Well, thanks to the National Lottery, we're pondering the ultimate Christmas dream, winning a jackpot. I know my next move is to get a ticket, punch in my lucky numbers, I have quite a few, and make all of this a reality. So remember, the National Lottery is where your numbers make amazing happen, whether that's a big jackpot win or helping the National Lottery causes across the country continue with the amazing work they do. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In, in terms of leaving the EU now, would you support a second referendum? I, I think if... I can't stand those people who rush around and say, get another referendum, get another referendum. Parliaments, you know, the people have spoken. I agree that, you know, there was a 51, 48, but look, Parliament laid down the law. I fought against that law. I said it ought to have a conditional majority, though it ought to be at least at 60, but that was the law that was passed, and you can't say I don't like the law. It has to be... You can't say that they lied because I'm afraid politicians... They did lie, by the way both sides in their own way. One lied outright and the other indulged in hyperbole, which is a kind of a lie, and who could tell the difference? Um, so I'm not in favour of, sort of, now I'm going to have another referendum. I do think that because the Brexiteers refused to tell us what kind of out they wanted, was it going to be in the secret the single market or away from the single market, they refused to tell us that because it would be much more difficult to win the vote. Now the government has to decide and negotiate, and there's a massive difference in the way that it affects people's lives, whether we're in the single market or whether we're out of the single market. I mean, it could make millions of jobs difference. So I think the British people are entitled to a vote on what kind of deal the government does. And at that stage, they should be entitled to say, no, Mr. Government, not good enough, go away and think again. In, in those circumstances, you could generate, uh, I don't call for it, but I think it could happen, you could generate a series of progression of movements that led you to the possibility of a reconsideration. But this can't be led by the politicians. It has to be led by the people. We have to answer to that call. We can't go around trying to say, we'll try and manipulate it. At present, what you guys have done, like it or not, is say, no, we have to leave. We politicians have to now say, in good faith, we'll try and do the best we can to put that into practice. If you change your mind, we have to be able to listen, but it's up to you now what happens. But let's say uh, the vote would have gone the other way and Farage would have been actually oh, the answer for a second referendum. Absolutely. Would you have supported a potential change? You know, had public opinion changed 
in a similar way? I, I, I'm a Democrat, and, and I do what the public tell me. You know, if but I, you're you know, a representative Democrat, aren't you? I, Not I, just a, a sort I, of hard and fast referendum. No, no, absolutely. I'm a re- I, I take my decisions as to what I believe to be in the best interests of my constituents and my country, and sometimes that means disagreeing with them. You know, I said to my own constituents, I, I would never vote to bring back hanging, although I suspect there was and may still be a majority to bring that back. I can't... In pursuit of a political career, I can't deny my own conscience. But on this issue, is if, if you choose to have a referendum... By the way, Hitler had four referendums. Hit, that, the referendum was Hitler's chosen path to power. I think Cameron had four. <laughs> AV, Scottish independence, uh, Falklands and Europe. Falklands? Did we didn't have in the Falklands. There was a referendum in the Falklands for self-government. In the Falklands? Yeah, yeah, which technically was a British territory. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, that's four, an interesting four thing. Four on four. Yeah, but he lost the thing. He lost Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole programme to be made on this, obviously. Um, but but he, did, he did make the mistake of losing the fourth, didn't he? So I don't, Hitler, Hitler didn't lose any. I mean, he, he shot him first. Yeah, say what you like about Hitler. <laughs> 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 I am not comparing Cameron with Hitler. I want that very clear. <laughs> and nobody in this room is the tweet that I have. Um, uh, <laughs> but did you, Where were we? Did you advise Cameron join the referendum? No. Did you say to stop using hyperbole? No, I did. No, no, I did. I, I tell you what, I did do. I became so certain we were going to lose about four weeks out that I actually went round and saw John Major and saw Gordon Brown, and saw Tony, and saw George Robertson, and said, look, um, the referendum Remain team, run by Number 10 Downing Street, thinks that Cameron is going to win this for them. And I said to him, he's not. He's now hugely distrusted. You have to change tactics. We're going to lose if you go on like this. And they wouldn't do so. And I think, um, look, I like the man. Um, his, um, his chief officer, the man who runs his office, actually worked with me very close, did the same job for me in Sarajevo when I was there as high representative. I like Cameron. He's a very decent man, with decent instincts, doesn't believe in anything, apart from, <laughs> apart from the fact that Britain would be better if it was run for, by people like him. Uh, that's his chief belief, but otherwise he's got absolutely none. Um, and, and, but, but I think, you know, you have to, and this is a big, big, big bad thing to say, but I think if you have to say in terms of what he has failed, what he has achieved, which is the removal of our country from the European Union, the potential breakup of the United Kingdom itself, crushing uh, lack of decline of, co- of confidence in and and the influence of our wonderful country abroad, I think you have to put him down now as one of the prime ministers you rank alongside Chamberlain and Eden as being one of those who's done our country most damage. Accidentally, (laughs) he didn't mean to, not because he was a bad man, but this casual insouciance in which he sort of did these things without thinking about them, extraordinary Etonian Etonian sort of fault. Um, Let's just do it that way, it'll be all right. You know, we are all right. Um, and, I mean, he's a perfectly decent man, but I think if you judge him by his record, I think that's where you get to. It's pretty tough, isn't it? Well, it will be his legacy, the outcome of that reference. It will be his legacy, and, and uh, you know, just as Iraq was Tony's legacy. In fact, Tony did much more than I. I think up to, up to the Iraq war, he was, he was a good, arguably even potentially great prime minister. But then after that, people don't remember any of it. Do you still talk to him much? Tony? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, no, I don't actually. No. Why not? 
Look, he and I were friends and we worked very closely together and I don't think once, once a person's a friend, I think, I think um, you don't go around criticising them in public, so I'm not going to say anything more than, um, than, um, than I, 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 just, I just don't terribly take up for the way he's acted out since he became Prime Minister. I mean, look, you've been British Prime Minister. Why would you want to do Russia, do any of those things? You know, why would you? John Major's been a wonderful, not so good a prime minister, but a wonderful, <laughs> no, but a wonderful ex-prime minister. He really has. <laughs> he really has. By the way, guys, this is not an easy job to do. You know, De De Ted Heath, you won't remember, you weren't even thought of then, but Ted Heath, Ted Heath was an awful ex-prime minister. Margaret Thatcher was even worse. Tony's not a good ex-prime minister, but John Major is. I mean, he's a sort of gentle, grey figure who goes around and does nice things. And what's more, he really believes... No, but he, he does much more than that. He thinks very deeply. He cares for his country. And people know that. And he behaves in a thoroughly decent way. And at moments, crucial moments, this man stands up and speaks. And he has a huge amount of influence where he does so, because he chooses moments to do that. He's, been, he's, a, he's a very decent man. I love his wife too. I think Norma's terrific. She's fabulous. Oh. I know. <laughs> I'm a, my wife likes him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be quite a good idea. Some sort of Paddy Ashdown's league of good ex-prime ministers. Yeah, yeah. Good so Major would sort of be top. Blair Thatcher down near the bottom. What else has excelled? Post office, do you think? Post office. Post office? I mean, Johnson, he was um, Gordon's been quite good, um, but, but that's because he's gone all silent. Um, <laughs> um, the less he speaks, the more people agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I used, to find, I used to find my ratings went up over the summer recess when I was party leader. <laughs> yeah, I was away on holiday. People used to say, stay away, Paddy, for God's sake. <laughs> we, might get it. We, might, we might win a more, few more seats. Yeah. How do you deal with the modern era of politics, then? Because... Um, you obviously keep your update, yourself updated. You're on Twitter. How yeah. do you find using that? Do you, do you I love it. experience it in the same way that other people do? Is sometimes quite a, a vicious medium. Oh, it's hugely vicious. I, I, it's hugely vicious. I, mean, I, I love I love stirring up the Brexiteers. Our friend over here. Um, so I, I just love sticking something out. The whole lot come out like a swarm of bees. And I tell you, <laughs> and I had I, I said something. I think it's quite mild. And I, this, it's okay. So he, I one friend one friend. I know he pops up because I watch it, but I can tell his style. And he said, Paddy Ashdown, you are a monstrous arsehole and a useless knut. <laughs> so I immediately retweeted it. It was such a good tweet. Don't you think? It's like the only thing. Now, I, I, when, I do, when I do Twitter and I drive my Lib Dem Sam Barrett's at the back, I drive him completely mad because I say all sorts of undisciplined things. But, but I, I never, I very rarely retweet unless I'm really attracted, unless I think it's very funny. Um, and um, so I, I use Twitter and it's a wonderful, don't you think? It's a wonderful discipline to try and get quite a complex thought into 150 characters. And if I've got something to say, which I think is worth saying, and it's different from others, I will tweet my own stuff, but I, I don't by and large use Twitter. So I got up this morning and shaved three times and kissed my wife goodbye and had something, you know, I just don't do that. And I, I, I don't think I should either. Shaved three times? <laughs> there are some people who have to. What parts of your body? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, my God, no, no. 
We're back to, <laughs> we're back to lavatory paper again here, <laughs> aren't we? A lot of it's inane, I agree with that. But I think it's a good way for people to connect with politicians, isn't it? I mean, yeah, sure, it, it certainly is. Without having your email address or your mobile phone, number, you can get in touch with Paddy Ashton and you can have a conversation. Yeah, yeah absolutely, it certainly is. Absolutely, it is. And that's good. Um, isn't there a lot of crap on there, though, isn't there? Don't you think? Oh, most of it's gibberish, yeah, and a lot of it's abusive, but you, you seem to take the abuse with good grace. Well, yeah, if you listen, if, you, if you're going into that medium, you better had, because it's quite a, quite a sort of tough old hairy place. Um, but I, you're dead right. I just adore this sense of communicating. You know, it sounds terribly patronising, doesn't it? I just, you know, I'm, I'm a politician because I love political engagement. I love debate. I love arguing with people. I love... You know, and this is another way of doing so, which is fine. I, I love that. Testing, you know, one of the things, liberalism is not an easy creed because you don't get any received wisdoms. It doesn't even tell you, you know, where freedom lies between the freedom to do something or the freedom to protect people from something. It doesn't, it's theory of the state is actually the state isn't very big. You need citizens to be big and powerful, and that's what we believe in. So it's a tough old creed, um, and the point about it is that you have to keep on honing it and sharpening against other people's opinions. Otherwise, how can you make the right judgments? And I just adore that process. Adore it. That, I'm a born Irishman, that's why, you see. That's what I just love. I love the little battle letters. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was brought up in the north of Ireland. Um, I'd like to tell the story, can I? Absolutely. Um, so I brought up in Northern Ireland, and, and, um, and I was, I'm the son of a, of a... That's where the paddy comes from. And so I'm the son of a, a Northern Irish Protestant mother and a Southern Irish Catholic father. And so when I went to school in Northern Ireland, a little place called Donaghadee in Northern Ireland, my kids, um, I was five, five years old, kindergarten said, well, I is, Paddy, I is a Protestant or I is a Catholic. And I didn't know the answer to this. I went back and said, Dad, am I a Protestant or am I a Catholic? And Dad's, my father, we didn't discuss that kind of thing. And I said, am I a Protestant or am I a Catholic? He said, go back and tell them you're a Muslim. <laughs> so, so I went back and said, I'm a, so, yeah, so I went back, I went back and said, I'm a Muslim. And they said, but I is a Protestant Muslim, or I is a <laughs> But anyway, I, I'm an argumentative sod, and I just love all that stuff. You know. But that's the great thrill of politics, isn't it? And I think that's where I kind of envy liberals at the moment, is that without, you get more benefit of creative political thought. On the left and the right, it feels far more dogmatic. Yeah, and yeah, the, you know, yeah, yeah. the right's instinct is always to prioritise. Yeah, yeah. The left is always to nationalise. Yeah, yeah. And we know the relationship yeah, with the state. You, you, it's, in that, it's in that middle ground well, where it, it appeals to both sides, where the real creative thought is. Well, it, it is, and, and you really are very close to it. Why don't you join? I'll give you... Um, <laughs> look, the, 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 point about, the point about it is that you, you, you put it in a, in a very simplistic, but I think very accurate way, because the left will say, this is the answer. The right will say, this is the answer. And usually they're wholly opposing. Uh, and actually the liberals say, well, hang on, actually, we've got to use common sense to find the answer. And it might need a bit of that, and it might need a bit of that. And so people say, oh, well, you're liberals, you're just sitting on the fence. You're not. You're making difficult judgments about issues. And what you're doing is, you, and you can't be a liberal um, and expect to be given received wisdom. You have to make up your own mind. You make up your own mind driven by those central propositions, which is respect for others, tolerance, and above all, we believe in the powerful citizen, not the powerful state. Um, and so, I mean, for instance, a liberal will say, if you get a socialist, say, here's a problem with poverty. The answer is load more money in and fix the outcome of the equation at that end. Give people money. 
The liberal will say, hang on, no. Your first step as a liberal is to give people more opportunity. So if you see poverty in the community, your first step will be invest education in it. You know, give people a greater opportunity to get themselves out of it. At the end of that process, if having done that, you haven't alleviated the poverty, you may have to think of direct injections of money. But a liberal's institution uh, instinct will always be see a problem, a social problem, and try first to solve it by giving people greater opportunity to exercise their own skills and talents and abilities. And then the rest comes later. And it's a much more difficult creed to follow. But you're right. You have to be creative. And you can't be brain dead. I mean, you can be a socialist and brain dead. You probably were at one stage, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you can certainly be a Tory and brain dead. Most of them are. <laughs> you know I don't mean that. I'm sure, I'm sure there are lovely Tories, but they just happen to be brain dead. Um, don't tweet any of this, please. <laughs> I think it's probably too late. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine because you can have a good old argument about it on Twitter tomorrow. Um, but one of the things that I really struggle with is, on, on all sides, is how politicians struggle to make their values relevant to the time in which they exist. And I think that is a particular struggle for the Labour Party at the moment. The Tories went through it a bit in the 90s and noughties. Is politicians actually understanding 2016 as it is now for, for people? Politics always seems to be sort of 10 or 15 years behind. Yeah, and, and, well, maybe they are, but I just know when a party's about to go downhill. And, by the way, I know it because, um, because I've seen my own party today when I became party leader <laughs> in, in 1988. Um, I mean, I am the only, um, uh, well, I'm the only political leader of any political party in the history of politics in Britain who's presided over a political party represented in the opinion polls by an asterisk, uh, <laughs> denoting that no detectable support could be found for us anywhere in the land. Uh, and we had to build it back from there. And when a party, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Socialist Party, Lib, Lib Dems or Tories, when they turn in on themselves, when what becomes important to them is winning control of the party. We don't mind losing just so long as we've got control of the party you know they're on the way to perdition. And that's what the Tories did, and I'm afraid it is what Labour's doing now. They're not interested in what happens out there, they're interested in who controls the party rather than who governs Britain. And I suppose they'll get out of it. Although, you know, Matt, I just wonder, I just wonder, I wonder whether we're at one of those watersheds in history. History uh, fascinates me. I mean, Marx once said that those who don't, um, don't study history are condemned to repeat it. And I think one of our problems is that none of our political readers understands or reads history at all. Um, but there was a moment in 1913 when the rising Labour Party simply swallowed the ground and electoral uh, space that the Liberals took and, we, and destroyed us, and they became the second party. If the disconnection of Corbyn's Labour Party is as deep and ingrained and irreversible as I think... I wonder whether we're not now seeing a reversal of that, that Labour, it's Labour who has lost touch. Uh, and if we can create a new movement of the centre, the progressive centre, my view, it can fill that space and it can probably provide Britain with not only a decent opposition to government, but government for a long time to come. So there's a huge amount that rests. And this is a very exciting time. And I, like you, are an optimist. You know, one of the things I've always seen is this incredible ability of human beings to rise to the challenge. If you give them an armchair and a strictly come dancing and a bottle of stout or something, I'm sure they will not want to do that. But if you if you present them, <laughs> I'm not teasing about anybody in this room, if you present them with a real challenge, if you look at the way that our country rose to the challenge. By the way, an effete, 
um, uh, country regarded in the 1930s a failure. They'd lost their empire, they'd lost their way, they couldn't stand up to Hitler. And yet our nation stood up at the moment of challenge and became the great nation that it was. And I think human beings can do that. I've watched them do that. This supreme ascendancy of the human spirit above all. And I think, I hope I'm not being sort of fanciful and revoltingly, breast-beatingly nationalistic. I think our country traditionally has that um, in ways which most other countries don't, I think. But a lot of people on the liberal left struggle with the idea of patriotism. I'm not. Why? Well, I think they think it's... Uh, yeah, but I, mean, I, I, yeah, but I can't, I can't bear... I don't, I don't no, exactly. I can't bear... <laughs> Why? No, no, it, it, there's a difference here. I think it's a difference we should recognise. When I was a young British soldier fighting for my country in the jungles in Borneo, someone said, who are you? I'd have said I was British and that would be enough. Now I have to give a much more difficult, different answer because we live in a much more complex, interdependent world. So now I'm Irish by blood and I'm very proud of that. Um, I belong to the community of the West Country of England, which I represented in Parliament. What greater privilege can you have? And I'm proud of that too. And I'm British and I'm immensely proud of that. And I am European. And unless I can describe myself in those ways, I can't describe the space in which I want to live and I want my children to live. And so I think those who say you can only have one identity, you only have one patriotism, I think, I think that's very dangerous. I think you end up with blood in your streets in Belfast or in Sarajevo if you do that. If you understand the concept of the multiple identity, at the heart of which is patriotism uh, for your blood, for your community, and for your country, I don't think there's anything shameful about that, providing you're patriotic for the right things. And I, you know, what? I am a deep patriot because of this country's wonderful traditions, which make us world famous of tolerance, respect, habit of compromise. And I now feel those, I, I just feel they're terribly endangered. Really, really endangered. I feel the same way. And I, I think the danger is if, if progressive people don't own the That's flag yep. or a sense of nationhood, yep. then regressive people do. And it yep. becomes about exactly. nationalism, Absolutely. it becomes about division, it becomes about persecution. Exactly. Rather exactly. than yep. having a Union Jack bedspread, having a Stuart Pierce shirt on yeah, the Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, pasties. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, yeah. the NHS as well. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. Let's open the floor up to questions then from the audience. We'll have the house lights up. Trish is going to come around. Oh, that was fun, you know. That was really good fun. Sorry. Oh, we're still going. Are we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a few. If we could just have the house lights up a bit. Yes, this chap down the front. I would take it, Trish. And mm. you let us know your name, question, and we'll get around as many people as we can. Hi there, I'm Peter. Um, to go slightly off topic, um, back in I think it was 2008, you almost became the UN Special Representative to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, given that it seemed like uh, the Afghan leaders or government at the time were the ones who blocked that nomination, Yeah. did you have any conversations with Hamid Karzai yourself yeah. personally? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And also, how would you judge his legacy as leader? Oh, hell. Um, Look, I, I um, did this job in Bosnia for four years, um, and um, I loved it. I, I adore the country, um, and I speak Bosnian. Um, and um, and uh, I have this idea how you can build peace after war. By the way, the idea is that what comes first is not elections. I mean, you have to have them, and you have to have them early. Um, but what comes first is the rule of law. You have to create the rule of law, because only when you've got that have you the basis for creating a proper democracy. 
So they asked me to do that. I was just sitting with my sister at home in Australia. Phone rang and it was Condi Rice on the phone saying, would I do this job? And then Gordon Brown asked me to do it. And I, frankly, I didn't want to do it. I, of course, I just come back from Bosnia. I mean, I want to go and do another um, six years in, in Afghanistan. Besides which, I thought it was probably impossible. And my wife said to me, look, Paddy, um, she often makes, she often you know, shows me the, the right way to go. Um, sometimes it's the door, but um, the, <laughs> the, the, um, the, um, uh, she said, oh, you know, the young Marines are having to go, you know, they're, they're, they're asked to go, they can't say no. You can't say no if they want you to do this. And so I spent three or four months trying to put together a plan. And indeed, I did go to see Carter. I went to see him in Kuwait on a secret visit. And I said to him, look, um, uh, Mr. President, you know, if I come, uh, to lead the international community in Afghanistan, then my first task will be to establish the rule of law because you haven't got it. And the only law that operates effectively, your law is corruption. Um, it's only the Taliban who provides people the rule of law. And may it, it, although it's a law people don't like particularly because it involves cutting hands off, etc., it is still nevertheless the law. They're providing security, you're not. And so it was all set up. And then, um, and then, um, that I would go, um, and then suddenly in the Afghan papers it started. My my um, my great great grandmother was involved in the first Afghan war in in, this, in the snows of, 1940, of 1842 when everybody was massacred, and the, these Af government um, supporting newspapers started saying Ashdown is coming to Afghanistan to revenge the death of his great great grandfather, and this was obvious that at this stage Karzai had it's their subtle way of showing that he'd withdrawn his support. This is going to be a tough enough job. I don't believe anywhere in international communities imposing on countries people with that kind of influence. And so it became obvious I couldn't do the job. I know what happened. Um, what happened is he went back and saw some of his friends, and you know, I don't think he was very corrupt, but certainly most of his backers were, the warlords, particularly in, 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 Hel in Helmand. Uh, and they said, look, Hamid, this guy comes and he does what he did in Bosnia, he's not going to be very good for business. And I think that was the reason why. Now, what is uh, Hamid? Listen, he's a classic Pashtun. He's a, um, he's a um, wily, clever, manipulative, a trader, a conspirator. And by those lights, he did pretty well. But I think he's left his country in a terrible mess. The only thing I can say is that I'm not sure anybody else could have done better. Good question. Thank you. Uh, very so good, but very unusual question. Check there on the, uh, on the end. There we go. And if we could have one sentence questions, and if we could, one sentence answer. Oh, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> so, what do you think? Okay, he's going to ask it. Now, what do you think we should do about Syria in one sentence? <laughs> one word. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. My name's Russell. Um, Hi, Russell. Um, I want to ask you a constitutional question. I'm concerned the way in which the British Constitution is going. Yeah. We now no longer seem to be a parliamentary democracy yeah. because we're deciding by referenda. Where in our constitution are we allowed to make decisions? Are we going to continue doing that? And I'm also concerned, linked to that, um, the attitude that's been taken towards the split between the judiciary and the executive and the approach that was taken by our government in not protecting the judiciary. It's and the and You want this in one, uh, one sentence? Yeah. Look, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, by the way, I don't believe in the sovereignty of parliament. I believe in the sovereignty of the people. And I think parliament needs to have a check and balance like anybody else. It's only check and balance is that pathetic institution to which I belong, the House of Lords, um, which, whose, inst whose members are appointed 
um, by the Prime Minister. That's patronage. I thought we got rid of that in the Stuart case. Only two ways of, of becoming a member of the House of Lords, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and the first is that you're a friend of the Prime Minister, and the second is your great-grandmother slept with a king. Uh, and I'm not entirely certain which of those is better. I, I, think, I think, you know, last week, Susan, well, Danny Dyer. Yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, anybody good. I mean, I think they're stopping people going past on the streets. So we let it come in. Anyway, um, so it doesn't act as a check and balance. Parliament is supposed to be sovereign, but actually the government has claimed that it is, and it has a right to not to consult Parliament. Fortunately, the courts have decided against it. So do we need... I mean, David Steele used to say that the British Constitution wasn't worth the paper it wasn't written on. And he's dead right. Uh, we don't have a written constitution. We don't have the proper checks and balances in our country. Uh, and the only check and balance we have are the judiciary and the civil service, because the civil service is independent, although becoming less so. Um, and, the, and the judiciary. And lo and behold, the judiciary are now insulted. Um, I was talking about parallels in the 1930s. As part of my research at about that time, I came across a Nazi-supporting newspaper of 1936-37, I think. Uh, and it had on its front page a picture of five judges who had taken an inconvenient judgment at the Constitutional Court, which the Nazi party didn't like, and written underneath it were German large letters was enemies of the people. Um, when you begin to disestablish a, a state run on the basis of the rule of law, you start to denigrate uh, and, and abuse and bully your judges and your judicial system. Now, judges aren't always right. Of course they're not. But, but without the judges and without the independence of the judges making those judgments, governments can do anything. Or elected dictatorships and parliaments can do anything. So these are very dangerous times. I mean, they are very dangerous times. We have to make sure that we recorrect re the balance or the imbalance of our country constitutionally. Very few people talk about constitutions, but actually that's the heart of it. Now, that was a one-sentence answer. It was a bloody long sentence, <laughs> uh, You asked me. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, detail. <laughs> 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 that's important. from this section that likes to ask a question or any... Yes, the chap waving at the bar. Hello there, uh, my name's Mike. Uh, sorry to bring the, uh, the tone down a bit, but um, ten years from now, will Bosnia-Herzegovina exist as a country? Well, if it doesn't, you're going to have a war. Um, I mean, the answer... I, th th you're absolutely right. What we had to do after Dayton is put Bosnia back on the path to statehood. And, and when I was there for the four years I was there, we did a lot of that. We made a single army, we created a single judiciary, we created the rule of law. We created a single VAT system that gave the government the revenues it needed. A lot to create a single state. But since then, it's been allowed because of Europe. Of Brussels is like, oh, Paddy did everything. We don't have to pay attention any longer. Everything started to spin apart. If it goes on like this, it might well break up. Um, that's certainly what the Serb leader of uh, Republic of Serbska, Miloran Dodik, is, uh, is heading for. Um, but let me tell you, that isn't going to happen without, without conflict, because um, this is another, another Muslim community that is in danger of being squeezed out. Um, there's a Muslim community that will be left with a pocket with no access to the sea. And that was the plan of Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic, both of whom I met, along with Milosevic. And both of them, indeed, are given evidence in the war crimes tribunals. If they try that again, then, um, then there will be war. So it may not be, but if it, if it isn't, then you've had a lot more blood spilt. Um, in order to get to that position. By the way, we're going to have a joke, don't you think? Can I have a joke? If you've got there one, is, yes. I, I speak Bosnian, and, and what I suggested to Nick Clegg, that he should have behind his 
um, desk in the coalition a great, but the Bosnians are very rude in their sayings, extremely rude. And so they have two great sayings. One is, da komcia sekne krava, which means, my neighbor's cow is dead, that makes me happy. Uh, very, 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 very Bosnian, uh, very Northern Irish too, by the way. Uh, and the other one, which I suggested should be behind Nick Clegg's de the desk as the motto of the coalition in Bosnian, is a great Bosnian saying, which goes, Lako je tujim kurt... Uh, nobody in the, Bos in the audience knows? It goes, Lako je tujim kurtsem gloginje mlatiti, which means, it's easy to be thorn bushes with other people's pricks. <laughs> and I, I thought, if only Nick had that behind his desk, so he knew what the purpose of the coalition was. But since, it, since it was in Bosnia, no one could tell. <laughs> now, is there a question on the balcony at all? Anyone on the balcony likes to shout, if you would? Okay, that means there's one question left downstairs. Anyone? So I can auction, yes, the lady at the front. The civil servants, I believe, given the cheer that went up for the civil service there. Um, Into the mic, please. Oh, sorry. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Julie. Um, given the rise of UKIP and the possible demise of Labour, who is the main opposition to the Tories? There isn't one. I mean, there isn't one, and that's what. And, and I mean, whatever you think, if you're a Tory, whatever you are, if you're a constitutionalist, if you understand the importance of uh, effective government, any government that does not have an effective opposition. Um, is a very dangerous government, whoever that government is, by the way. Um, I think Mrs May has moved the Tory party lock, stock and barrel onto the, um, onto the ground of, of, of UKIP. Um, and um, I, I, you promise you won't tweet this. Can I be, have an absolute understanding this isn't going to be tweeted? Oh, chat mouse rules, yeah. I turned over to my wife um, the other day, because I tweet, you're talking about tweeting, I tweet quite a lot. <laughs> I, about two o'clock in the morning, uh, she wasn't pleased. And I, I said to her, do you think I can tweet this tomorrow? Mrs. May's Conservatives, UKIP, but with clean underwear. And she said, no, you cannot, <laughs> under any circumstances. Um, but that's what broadly has happened. And so absolutely... It's a compliment of sorts. It's a compliment of sorts, yes. Sort of backhanded compliment. Um, we are quite anal tonight, though, aren't we? <laughs> I can say that here, can't I? Because you're, you're, I mean, you're all very relaxed and none of this makes sense. Um, so, I mean, it is really, really serious that we don't have a decent opposition, which is not to say that Jeremy Corbyn does some things quite well. I mean, I like his style, Joe. I like his relaxed style. I like his informality. I like the lack of pomp. I just think his ideas are bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> the, rest, the rest is quite good. So, and he's quite good sometimes on the dispatch box, and he can't, but there isn't a decent opposition. And that's another reason why we really have to show the statesmanship, courage, flexibility to put together a force that represents the decent centre of Britain, because that's where I think the good government of our country lies, and it's the only way you're going to bring this government to account. So it's up to you guys, really. Um, ladies and gentlemen, before we finish, Paddy wanted you to read out a message. Uh, uh, his latest book, The Game of Spies, is available in <laughs> all, all good bookshops, uh, and I'm sure it's absolutely thrilling. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if I don't see you before uh, Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas, but please give it one that. Paddy, can I just say, you are superb. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs>
what a heavyweight. What a great guy. What great company. And uh, I hope you're enjoying this. It does, I didn't want to do them chronologically. I, I went through the back catalogue and just picked out a few and, and put them into an order that I thought made sense. Um, just mixing it up a bit. I didn't want to just do it in order. So I know we're zipping through time each week. But in a way, I think that's a better way of doing it. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. Paddy Ashdown, sadly no longer with us. But what's a lovely happy accident of this is that there are these time capsules of long interviews with amazing people where you really get a sense of who they are. And I think for quite a few of them, um, it's probably not the only time they've been given an hour, but certainly the space within an hour just to talk and, and really say what they think. Um, in front of an audience as well, and the, the chance to just entertain people. And obviously they get to do that at party conferences among friends, but this is open to everyone. And, I, and I'm just so grateful that so many politicians, so many people in the in the last 10 years of the show have come on and just been themselves. And I think we're all better for being able to see people in that way. So, uh, Paddy, um, what a great guest he was. And uh, thank you for listening to this. And um, yes, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Check in on me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. And as soon as I'm back, I'll be making new shows and the show will return at the Duchess Theatre. Until then, um, I'll be um, well curating this bespoke choice of uh, hits from the back catalogue. I'll see you next time. ta -ra.